They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now, they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two men power trip of wrestling. The two-man power trip of wrestling brought to you and powered by Bombas. Bombas is a mind-blowing athletic leisure sock built for durability and with a mission to help those in need. And with that being said, my name is Chad. And as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime, John Paz. And John, today on the show, we have a guy who, quite frankly, may have created the single greatest pro wrestling rap inside of a pro wrestling theme song in history when you hear we are the nation live and in color and i'm gonna stop right there but we have one half of pg-13 one half of the multi multi-time u.s wa tag team champions he is wolfie d and now wolfie d joining us is very very cool because we get a very cool take and a very great story on how that Nation of Domination rap came about. But I just want to just take a second and say, if you are a new listener to the two-man power trip of wrestling, just stay tuned for a little while. We do a little quick blurb about what you're about to hear, and we get right into the interview. No bones about it. Jump right to what you want to hear. We're going to get right to Wolfie D in a minute. But first, I'm going to welcome in my man, primetime John Paz. And John, I just want to know, when it comes to Wolfie D... What's something you feel like you learned about Wolfie D that maybe you didn't know before? It's, it's kind of funny because you, you were saying, like, what else do we learn about Wolfie D? And obviously you got to listen to the interview and you learn more other stuff. But one thing that I personally learned, and, and you know, you're looking through and you're following him, uh, you can follow him on Facebook. He's got a couple pages there. You follow him on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. But it's great to find out that he's such a great artist. And you go to Pro Wrestling Tees and, and you get some of his great shirts, not only – on Pro Wrestling Tees, but on One Hour Tees, he's got some great Spider-Man Green Goblin shirts. Of course, he made the Jerry Lynn awesome uh, tribute shirt for, you know, to benefit Jerry Lynn. So it's just one great thing that you learn about Wolfie D that you might not expect is that he's such a good artist and uh, he does a lot of great graphics and, and he's a great drawer. So it's one of the things, you know, besides obviously being a hell of a wrestler, he's also a great artist and that was one exciting thing. And uh, another great thing that we learned about Wolfie D is that he is another one of our favorites because he's a straight shooter. You know that we love those straight shooters. And, you know, he pulls no punches. We feel like the last couple of guests we have, and uh, Rory Fox and uh, Rene Dupree, definitely do not pull any punches. So it was great to hear another guy in Wolfie D of uh, PG-13 fame, of Nation of Domination fame, to uh, to really throw some uh, some shoot comments out there. So it was great. To learn, you know, all about Wolfie D, the artist, the wrestler, and the shooter. Now, I did my best at trying to recreate Wolfie D's Nation of Domination rap, and I'm sure once we wrap up this uh, intro, I'll probably go back to uh, doing it again. But tell me, were you a fan of that Nation rap? And do you feel like that song helped mold what the group was that once that 
you know, we are the nation hit. That business was indeed going to pick up. Yes, the infamous Nation of Domination rap song. Yes, I, I was a huge, huge fan of that song. I mean, I just absolutely love that song, and it just fit with them actually so perfectly. It was great. And one of the best stories, like you mentioned, Chad, one of the best stories that comes out of this is the story of Wolfie D making up the rap, with obviously with J.C. Ice, but it was mostly him creating it. And making up the rap and having to, you know, say to Vince. But you'll hear the whole story about how, obviously, everything goes through Vince. Does he like it? Does he not like it? So, when they did on the house shows, it was a little bit different. But when it was live and in color, you got the awesome Nation of Domination rap. And I felt that that song, it really, really did it help uh, help mold the group. I mean, obviously, you had Ron Simmons. You had Crush. You had Savio Vega. A young D'Lo Brown. A Clarence Mason. But I really think PG-13 and that song definitely great song one of those memorable memorable wrestling themes you just don't forget and that really helped mold the group and and make them what they really were you know one thing that wolfie really touched on that i felt was a really great point was the fact that pg-13 were innovators when it came to the style the look that they had it was kind of at a time where not really many people had that idea in their head of you know the uh quote you know, white rapper or the guys that had the gangster look. But, you know, we see the other names that he mentioned being Too Cool or Public Enemy or even John Cena as being people that took that same gimmick and went in another direction with it. And he even specifically states Too Cool is taking, you know, the the colors at first of what PG-13 used to have in their attire as being a part of the Too Cool act. But talk about PG-13 as an innovator. Talk about Wolfie. Uh, as an innovator, because he really was seemed to be the creative process behind PG-13. When you think back and you think about PG-13, you got to think about how underrated they were as a team. Great team. I mean, they won tag team gold everywhere they went. They dominated the USWA when it was a big-time territory in the 90s. So being a PG-13 and being a great tag team wasn't just enough, though, because I feel like they're much more than that because they were really innovators. And if you think about it, and Wolfie D gets into it more, and then I'm going to get into it here, but you think about it, PG-13 comes along, and all of a sudden they got men on a mission, and, and it's kind of doing the, the very similar gimmick. Obviously, men on a mission was black, and PG-13 was white, but you, you know you get the point, and if you listen to the interview, Wolfie D makes perfect sense of it. And then you think about Too Cool. Brian Lawler, Brian Christopher, if you will, a longtime fan, um, excuse me, a longtime friend of uh, Wolfie D. He's known him forever because obviously uh, Wolfie worked for his father in the USWA and they worked together and, you know, they've known each other for a long time. So, I, you know, you, you got to believe Wolfie D when he says this that Lawler, and, uh, Brian Lawler, and uh, Scotty Tuhati stole a gimmick from PG 13. So, you know, obviously it's a little bit different. It's WWEized, if you will. It's more sports entertaining. It's cornier. But, you know, basically where they got the gimmick from was PG-13, just without the edge to it. And then, of course, the big one is John Cena. John Cena, obviously, you know, you could say he took it from Vanilla Ice, but JC Ice is uh, kind of like the Vanilla Ice gimmick itself. Obviously, Cena want to have a little bit of edge to it. That's what PG-13 is all about. So if you really, really think about it, PG-13, not only an underrated tag team, but they're innovators as well. And I do believe that Too Cool, Men on a Mission, and John Cena all did take that gimmick, steal it a little bit uh, from PG-13. 
Uh, John, before we get to a little two-man power trip of wrestling business, we just want to thank Wolfie D for coming on and giving us a look into his career. It was quite a long talk. It was actually uh, it was a lot of fun to do. I really got to say, uh, deep down, um, he is a really great artist. Uh, he puts over his artwork quite well. Please go visit uh, ProWrestlingTees.com and look for Wolfie D's merchandise for his t-shirts. Check out his Facebook fan page. He gives all the information on that at the end of our interview. And John, I'm going to turn it over to you, but I want to remind everybody that today's episode is brought to you by Bombas. And John, you have a little something to say about the greatest sock that has ever been created. Yes, Chatty Bombas is back, baby. The greatest sock in the history of socks is back. Just remember, when you buy a pair of socks, one does get donated to the homeless. That is the cause. That is the mission of Bombas. They are the greatest sock of all time. And if you go to our website, tmptofwrestling.com, that is tmptofwrestling.com, and in the upper left-hand corner, you will find the Bombas link. Please click on that link and do all your Bombas shopping through us. We would greatly appreciate that, and you will not be sorry. You will love it because you will have the greatest sock of all time. Now on to some TMPT business. I mentioned the website, but also please like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Rasslin Palant at Two Man Power Trip. Also, please subscribe to us on YouTube and please subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Also, while you're on iTunes, check out the feed with past episodes with Dean Ambrose, Kane, Jesse the Body Ventura, the late great Dusty Rhodes, Sergeant Slaughter, and many, many others. I promise you, you will enjoy it. Also, please check out Kamala, Rory Fox, and Renee Dupree for some controversial interviews we did. So check that out. That's great stuff. And also, please check us out on the I-95 Sports Network. Pump that into the little Google machine there, and you will see the I-95 Sports Network, and you will see the two-man power trip. We were live and in color with best of episodes every Monday night at 6 p.m. Eastern, so also check us out there. Now, without any further ado, the 16-time USWA Tag Team Champion. He's a former Nation of Domination member. He's a former NWA Tag Team Champion, formerly known as Slash and the Disciples of the New Church. He is an underrated talent and an underrated artist, to be honest. Great guy. Awesome interview. What a straight shooter. He is PG-13's Wolfie D. Please enjoy. So joining us on the line tonight is an original member of the Nation of Domination. He was also Slash and TNA and the Disciples of the New Church. Of course, a longtime staple in the USWA, a member of PG-13, that is Wolfie D. Wolfie D, thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Not a problem, man. Thanks for the, the big intro there. Oh, my pleasure. I could sit here. I wanted to name off every single uh, tag team championship win in the USWA, but I figured uh, we might be here for a little while if I was going to start doing <laughs> we, that. It's possible. <laughs> so, thank you, though, I, man. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. Uh, so definitely uh, you've been back in the news a lot in the last couple of days, and it's with – 
You know, I got to say, some of the best wrestling art that I think I've ever seen, and it starts off with what everybody really stood out seeing, and that was the Jerry Lynn tribute shirt. How did that come about? Um, it's fantastic. It, every word on there, you know, I like looked at every word individually, and it literally stands for everything that Jerry Lynn represented in the ring. But how did that shirt come yeah. about? And then we're going to ask you about your art, because like I said, it's phenomenal. Yeah, thank you. Um Man, I've known Jerry for a long time. Uh, uh, known his wife as well. And um, when I saw, you know, I, you know how wrestlers are. We don't all keep in contact that well, especially after we get out of the business. Um, but I saw on there where he was, you know, they had a GoFundMe for him, trying to raise some money for him. Um, and I just thought, you know, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to fool anybody. My financial situation is not that great these days. So I thought, well, how could I? you know, help Jerry out, and, you know, I've been doing uh, some artwork lately, doing t-shirt designs, I do logos, I do things like that, and I've done that on the side for a while, not just recently, but uh, I thought, you know what, man, maybe people would, uh, you know, get behind that as well, let me make a shirt for him, and, you know, I, I set it up to where all the commission would go to his family, you know, and go straight to their bank account. And, uh, you know, I just thought of that. Those are what I thought of. And the, the picture that I saw, you know, I was scrolling through looking for some pictures of Jerry. And when I saw that one, I was like, oh, that's it right there. <laughs> Let me fade that out and put all these words around. I don't know. It just hits me sometimes like that where I can sit there. Sometimes it'll take me about two days. And I'll have to take breaks. I can't look at it no longer until I just finally, uh, you know, I feel it's right or whatever. I I hope everybody liked it. I, you know, I yeah, I hope everybody liked it. It, it was uh, that's my way of giving to Jerry. That was, a, that was the way I could do it, you know. Oh, it's it's like I said, every word: sacrifice, champion, heart, blood, sweat, and tears. Everything that when you look at that picture and you see Jerry Lynn, it's exactly what you think about, and that's a great uh, a great choice on the photo. And then, like I said, just the yeah. design is fantastic. But that's not the only one that really catches my eye because if you head to the Facebook page of the art of Wolfie D. I I gotta say I was taken by the Eddie Gilbert uh, design as yeah. well. Now, how did you really get into you know singling out? I mean, you you got a great career in the professional wrestling business, but was it always wrestling art that inspired you to do this, or did, were you always uh, you know a creative entity in that regard? Yeah, I was just kind of it's a God given talent. I was always able to draw and stuff when I was younger. Uh, of course, I would draw wrestlers. I also drew a lot of. Uh, like it's funny because I saved a lot of my stuff. So if you went back and looked at the stuff that I drew as eight between like say eight and ten years old, you'd go, "Oh my God, this kid is disturbed." There was a lot of beheadings and uh, barbarians and <laughs> demon shit. But uh, at any rate, I also drew a lot of wrestlers and you know stuff like that. And once I got into the business, I really got away from from art for a long time, where I just really didn't draw much. And um, I guess it's been you know over the past few years that I kind of reconnected, started doing that again. And I really love drawing on the computer. You know, I got a thing where a pen and pad thing that goes straight to the screen. And I really like the ability to be able to correct mistakes without an eraser that you can still see the mistake with, things like that. But uh, I'm pretty good with, uh, you know, some of the, uh, you know, Photoshop and Illustrator and all that stuff. So I don't know. It just it gives me uh, it's another way to make a little cash on the side, um, and it's uh, a little bit gratifying again. Where it, it, for a long time it lost that, but I don't know. I'm, I get, I'm into it again. 
And what's the uh, uh, the Eddie Gilbert? Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but the Eddie oh, Gilbert yeah, no. just came along because uh, I don't know. Uh, somebody had, you know, I was doing commissions there, and somebody was like, they wanted a picture of Eddie. Uh, paid me to to draw a picture of Eddie for him. And I did that, and then I thought, you know, I've at least got to give a copy of this to Doug. So I printed out like an 11 by 14 for him and sent it to him and, you know, in a frame and everything. And uh, then, I don't know, the the pro wrestling tees in the barbershop window is a good opportunity for for me to get on there and showcase some of my stuff. And I was talking to Doug. I was like, hey, man, I said, I'll do you one, and I'd like to do one of Eddie. And uh, we worked out a little agreement, you know, on that. And, uh I just put one to Doug up today that I did. I don't know if you saw that one, but yeah, I did. Uh, there's there now a, there's a Doug and an Eddie one now. So. Oh, it's so awesome! But what I was going to say, what has the fan response been to uh, some of these? Not just Jerry Lynn, not just the Eddie Gilbert, but now the Doug Gilbert went up today, and another one. It's just it's uh, it's off striking how awesome it is. But what has the fan response been towards you? Well, it's hard to tell. Um, I mean, the way they got it set up is they'll send you, you know, once a month you get your commission. So it'll be a while before I, you know, kind of can figure out how how well they're selling or how not well they're selling. Uh, my Spider-Man versus the Goblin design was doing all right. Uh, I got a little bit from that already. But, yeah, they're doing all right. I mean, as far as, you know, on social media, everybody's like, oh, my God, that's great, that's great. Yeah, I want one. But then as far as... You know, people actually pulling out the the, the pocketbook and, and buying is another thing. That's just how people are in general. But yes, everybody seems to like it. Now, one thing with you in your career that really, really stands out is obviously TC13, you and JC Ice, aka Jamie Dundee, awesome mm-hmm. tag team. Totally very underrated in you know in the annals of time. But I used to love you guys. But where did you guys you. come up with? that gimmick and when you were paired together did you originally think that you know you guys would be as successful as you turned out being well we um i actually came up with the gimmick myself um I, we were both we met each other on the independent circuit i was, i started when i was like 16 and i think we met by the time i was about 17 Jamie's about two years older than me and um, Chris Champion had kind of taken uh, me under his wing a little bit, and he was doing a gimmick. Uh, if you remember in the 90s, Ugly Kid Joe, he was doing sort of a gimmick like that where he had shorts on, and he was just kind of the grunge look deal. And I I liked at that time, you know, I was coming out of high school and uh, was all into, you know, gangster rap and all that. And <laughs> I, I just... It was NWA, and it's funny because that movie's coming out right now that I'm saying this, but NWA, you know, Easy E and all them, I love that. And actually the song that gave me the name for PG-13 was a song by NWA called Parental Discretion is Advised. Uh, Parental Discretion is Advised for the moment. So at any rate, I was I was uh, sitting in my room and trying to come up with all these different names. I had Hip Hop Express and all this kind of bullshit, but for some reason, when I wrote down that parental discretion and then I changed it to PG-13, I was and, and PG-13 was kind of a new thing in the movie ratings at that time too. So it, I don't know, just something about it stuck with me and I liked it. And me and Jamie had been talking because I, like I said, I was already wearing the shorts and uh, calling myself Wolfie D, and and we decided we should do a tag team. And then you know I came up with that name. And I mean, from the get go, we were we were good together. I mean, we knew we both knew how to take bumps and how to do all that stuff. I mean, later came how to work, and then later it came how to draw money. 
Um, but, yeah, we were kind of good from the get-go. And, you know, I've had some good partners, you know, Brian Lee, um, Flash Flanagan was a good partner of mine too. But nobody ever had what me and Jamie had just as far as, like, me and Jamie could look at each other and knew exactly what the other one was thinking. And that really comes in handy in the ring when all kind of shit's going crazy and you might be, you know, wrestling somebody that really ain't on your level. So you're trying to control four people instead of just two, you know. Definitely. Now, you, obviously, uh, Chad mentioned before, you were a 16-time USWA tag team <laughs> champ. You were a USWA heavyweight champ. Uh, you basically did it all TV champ, middleweight champ. I mean, you did it all in the USWA. But what was it like in that territory? Because a lot of people, you know, that don't pay as much attention to business as they should don't remember that uh, organization fondly. But if you really go back, it was a great underrated organization under Jerry Lawler. Yeah, man. Uh, when we came in, Jerry Jarrett was booking. You know, Lawler and Jarrett own that. But uh, Jarrett was booking. They'd take turns, and occasionally somebody like Dundee or Dutch would book. And Jerry's the one that gave us our break. Um, he made the rap videos and all that stuff. And and the thing that was awesome about that in those times um, were, you know, somebody young like us, you know, getting into the business was we were working six nights a week. It was like a real job, you know. You traveled to a different town, uh, but you did go to the four main towns uh, once a week. And uh, to be able to draw what we were drawing then, now when we got in there in 93, the – the territory was down a bit, and um, around 94 is when we started getting our push. Uh, 95, 96 is when it got really big, the whole Smoky Mountain USWA thing, PG-13 versus Rock and Roll Express. Um, really started getting um, – the houses came way up, and if you go back and look at the numbers, man, people would die to have that once a week right now, uh, those, those type of numbers. So – it, it was great to be able to learn. We had uh, veteran guys to wrestle with. I mean, even when I, in 93, when I started, you know, uh, I would wrestle Danny Davis pretty much every night, the guy that went on to, um, you know, uh, start OVW. And uh, Jamie would wrestle Ken Wayne. They were the nightmares. So, and, and then usually we'd come back in a tag later on the spot shows. So, uh, you know, what better people could you ask to teach you how to work when you're first breaking into a territory than those two and then to go on and, and be able to wrestle you know people like Tommy Rich and uh, Doug Gilbert and um, you know Rock and Roll Express and uh, you know all the guys that came in and, and worked with us uh, week in and week out I mean we were just we were lucky man we were really blessed to be in that situation so you know, the guys today that are trying to break into the business, you know, they're lucky to get two shows a week and, you know, and then even luckier to get to work with somebody that knows what the hell is going on and be able to teach them and be able to learn from them. It's a whole different ballgame. And the whole thing with, you know, setting up an angle on TV to go do it all that week and learn how to do interviews, not just to talk, but to get asses in the seats. So it's just a different ball game now, you know. And with the USWA, obviously Lawler and Jared were in charge, but Lawler was back and forth with the WWF at that point. What was he like? Was, was he not very, you know, like hands-on since he was kind of going back and forth? Uh, no, not so much. Uh, you know, Randy Hales took over um, in 94, and he's the one that is really responsible for the for our push and uh, I would say for popping the territory, all that shit was his, you know, he got the talent in there and he booked the 
look the angles and everything. So, yeah, while Lawler was gone and Jeff was gone, you know, uh, so you can't really give any credit, you know, sometimes, you know, if Lawler would come in and, you know, maybe work a WWF guy on top or something like that to help out in Memphis and things like that. But, yeah, um, he while he was up there, he he wasn't very hands-on, you know. But he he had faith in Randy, and Randy did a hell of a job. Now, were you there when they had the, the, you know, the mini, quote-unquote, WWF invasion where Vince kind of came in as almost the heels, almost a precursor to the heel Vince character years later? Were you there during that little WWF uh, feud, if you will, with what, the WWF? What year was that, do you know? Hmm. Because I can't really remember Vince being there. I mean, they sent down a lot of guys from New York down down to us and stuff, but I, I don't I don't recall Vince being there. I want to say it was like ninety. But, it was like ninety four. He did a lot of pre tape stuff, but I think he was yeah, inside yeah. for one or two shows. Yeah, um, I mean, I was there during ninety four. Ninety ninety four, we were in uh, the beginning of ninety four. We were in Mexico for a little bit, then we came back, and then the end of ninety four, we went to Puerto Rico for a little while. So, I mean, it could have been one of the times when we wasn't, you know, weren't there, but we were there for most everything. And I mean, like I said, there were guys coming down and all that kind of stuff. So I would I would say yes, but as far as him being there, I don't, I don't recall that. And and that's subject to <laughs> I don't remember a lot of stuff for for various reasons <laughs> that um you know. <laughs> Obviously you guys at that point, you know, you guys were a great team and you did feud with the Rock and Roll Express for a brief period, but were they your favorite team to work or did you have a specific team that you really enjoyed working with in the USWA? Mm, man, um the matches we had for them with them were I mean, just meaningful, you know, it was it was good stuff. Uh man it's hard to say who would be my favorite to work with. God, that's a tough question, man. It really is. And I have you know, people say, What was your favorite match or this, that and the other? Who was your favorite opponent? Well, it's I have different ones for different reasons. I have I have ones that were like, you know, a huge house and a meaningful match, but might not have been my favorite match, as opposed to I've had, you know, man, I, me and uh, me and X-Pac, when he was one, two, three kid, had a match in Memphis that was, you know, freaking awesome, but it didn't get on tape, but the house was good, and we had a great match, and I'd give anything to be able to see that, and I never did. So I, re- I recall that one, you know. There's a lot of memories I had that I can't just go, okay, this person, because – Every night that person might not have been my favorite match. Does that make sense at all? <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, you know, and and to tell you the truth, and like we've kind of tried to put over here, is USWA is definitely in that, you know, somewhat forgotten territory now that, uh, you know, the footage is going to be stashed away, and who knows when it's going to see the light of day again. But what is something that you could point out to the fan maybe who's not familiar, has heard the name, What's something you would point them in the direction of in terms of your run in the USWA? Maybe a, a, a moment or something that stands out to you as your, not even your favorite, but just something where you would start and show them, like, this is the USWA. Well, you would just, that that whole time period for me where uh, it really started, you know, we came in as as undercard heels, you know, a lot of, a lot of ha-ha stuff. Um, but still solid matches. Then we left and we came back, and the Eliminators had just come back from Japan. The Eliminators were the tag team champions uh, they, before their pre um, ECW days. 
And uh, I actually came back first, and uh, it was supposed to be me and Spike Hubert against the Eliminators of Memphis, and uh, Spike was hurt or something like that. And, and Jamie came back, excuse me, and they hit the music. I was already in the ring. They hit the music. You know, it was an impromptu deal. And uh, they played Ice Ice Baby, and Memphis popped like a son of a bitch, man. Jamie came to the ring. You know, we reunited, and we beat the Eliminators with the hubcap finish, and that place went nuts because Eliminators have been beating the fuck out of everybody from what I understood before we got there. So for us to come back in, babyface, beat them, boom, that was the kind of the start of it. And we had great, you know, angle with those guys. Then the whole Tommy Rich and Doug Gilbert angle started. And see, what I'm, what I'm trying to tell you here is the houses were low in 93. Then the Eliminators and stuff started coming up. Tommy Rich and Doug Gilbert angle, the houses started coming up even more. And if you watch us, you can see us evolve. We learned, you know, in 93 I was talking about Danny Davis and then we were learning how to work then. Then you progress to Eliminators. Then we all of a sudden were put in a situation where we were learning how to get over then with Tommy and Doug, we were put in a situation where we were learning how to draw money and how to do money interviews. And then after that, you you know, there were some other teams here and there in between some of that uh, that were just fed to us to get us over a little bit more. But then when the whole Smoky Mountain thing came, we had kind of figured out, you know, our place and, you know, just we'd come into our own, as they say. And... um you know, we we learned how to do that money interview, and we were over, and people believed in us, and and that's a whole nother thing there. Where people, um, I don't think today it's it's harder to draw because they don't necessarily believe in people anymore. They are entertained by people, but no one believes in uh, you know. They, I'm telling you something. If you go in Memphis and Jerry Lawler's walking down the street and he pulled down his strap. There's a ton of people standing around that would probably run another direction because they really believe, you know, not so much today, but but it's still in Memphis. They believe Jerry Lawler's a bad dude, man. And, you know, during that time, we got into a situation not over as much as Lawler, but we were over and they believed in us, man. And uh, that's the difference when they believe in you and they, they, and you suspend that belief for a minute. There's a lot of stuff right now that I see where there's no way people are entertained by it and there's, tremendous athleticism and things like that, but there's not that, you know, the heels got heat and the baby face is over that I see anyway. You know, somebody might want to argue that fact, but I just don't see it that way where there's, you know, there's people still go. I don't know how many times I've had people come up to me and talk about the past and say, you know, I know I know it's all fake and all that, but, you know, there was this one time when so-and-so and so-and-so did this Man, they were mad. Hey, that was real right there. And you know what that tells me? That whoever so-and-so and so-and-so was was fucking good workers, man. They, <laughs> they, they, they took them out of that moment for a minute because that person told me they knew the shit was fake, but they also knew that that one time that shit was real. <laughs> That's the beauty of it. And looking back, do you think – you guys may be the biggest beneficiaries of being the younger talent that really made a great name for yourself and moving forward because you had the established guys that really brought the cachet, but do you think you guys really stood out and kind of made that move forward as like maybe the, uh, you know, the breakout uh, stars of the crew? Um, I'd say, I'd say us. I mean, it was a group effort at, at one point. Yeah, we, we were the babyface tag team, 
But then you had Brian Christopher, who you know Brian Lawler, who was the uh, singles babyface. Then you had uh, Doug Gilbert and Tommy were heels, but then they ended up turning babyface and they stood out as well. And uh, then you had the whole Smoky Mountain crew. There was there was a few that uh, you know there was a lot of talent that was man there. I bet you didn't know uh, Chris Canyon came in for a little bit. You know, there's there's names throughout that that you'd be like, wow, I, n- I never knew they were there. I actually pile-drived uh, Chris Canyon through a table one night <laughs> in the whole angle of things. And uh, there there was a lot of people in and out. But, yeah, f- as far as your staples and your and your mainstays there, it was, it was us and it was Brian and Tommy, Doug, and then – you know the Smoky Mountain crew at one point almost became uh, part of the, of the crew. They were there so much, so yeah, it was a good times, man. Now definitely moving forward a little bit, uh, but not too far. Now you, you joined the WWF in uh, the fall of '96. The Nation of Domination, obviously, a huge platform for you guys to perform on. How did it come about? How did you come in as? Uh, you know the uh, the outside crew for the nation really uh, ended up kind of being the fall guys on a lot of uh, a lot of different situations. Yeah. But uh, how'd that all come about, and what was uh, what was your first initial experience like? Well, the first time was actually '95. We went up as USWA Tag Team Champions on Monday Night Raw. They announced us as such, and you know we we uh, got a squash match where we went over to build us up for the following week to work the smoking guns in a title match. Um, so that was that was awesome to be able to do that and get you know a little little love with the with the win and everything uh first time out so the thing was uh that the Mexican invasion happened the wrestling business is all about timing man, and we were just a little bit early on our timing going up there because uh that was a time when everybody was huge giant monsters, and you know we were not that big. And so we went up there. They loved our work. They loved our gimmick. They loved our interview. Uh, but, you know, they were, oh, they're too small was what they said. And uh, so, you know, then a couple of years later, then all of a sudden the Mexican invasion happens, the cruiserweights, everybody starts shrinking, and there's room for guys our size. <laughs> so it's like we were just a little bit too early. Had had we have come along maybe, you know, a few years, you know, a year or so later, could have been a different story. We might have stuck around the whole time right there, but uh, we didn't. They said we were too small. So that's when you see, um, you know, we went back to Memphis or whatever. Uh, and then, 96, we get called up to do the rapping uh, for the, the Nation of Domination. Uh, and, you know, that was cool and everything. Of course, you know, we were always trying to find ways to get involved in the match instead of just standing there, you know, which was kind of, the, I guess, the original thing. Maybe we'd take something here and there, but believe me, we were going to Ron going, hey, well, let's get in on this, this. And we were creating shit for ourselves probably more than they really wanted us to, but, you know, that's that was how we knew how to get over. You know, we had a one-up on a lot of people because, you know, we were from Memphis and we worked all the time and, had a little bit of experience and uh you know we'd always find the camera that's one thing if you ever watch it you're going especially jamie we knew where the (laughs) camera was at all times and we would be sure to put our face in it uh as well as when i wrote the rap uh you know i put our names in it so just little things like that to help make us stand out more than the rest of the original nation crew that were just basically you know uh bodies to be around the roof you know 
So, so it was cool, man. Now you put together the rap. Now this is this is definitely a question I'd be very very curious uh, to to mm-hmm. ask here, and that is, did you have to perform it for Vince before it went on the air, and what was his response to uh, a rapping gimmick like that at the time? Yeah, man, it kind of sucked the way it happened. They we flew up to the office and everything, and uh, I I had written it all out. And we met with Jim Johnson, the guy that does the music, and uh, he he laid down a track for it. And so we got we knew we were going to have to wrap this thing live every night. So they gave us a copy uh, of the you know on a on a not a CD but a, a, a tape, a cassette tape, and, and gave us a copy of the music. Okay, and it was basically doing it. Dun, 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 uh, you know that, but it didn't have. Uh, uh, we are the nation. Only had that like one time in there. Well, okay, so we get that, and hell, we're riding up and down the road every night, putting the, that instrumental in, and me and him sitting in the car, rapping it back and forth, right? So we've got the timing down. Boom, we've got it nailed. So we get to Survivor Series, uh, and that that was the debut of it in us. And uh, you know we're we're before the show and everything, and there comes Vince, and we're supposed to fucking walk out and do this thing for Vince right there. Boom! We get live mics. We get ready to start rapping. They fucking change the beat and added in that we are the nation. It, it played. It, it it kept coming in more times than it was supposed to. So which was totally throwing the fucking timing off of what we had been rehearsing in the car. So I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> and so anyway, man, uh, it was kind of a scramble for us to figure it out. We did it, I guess. I mean, there was a lot of times where, hell, I ain't going to lie to nobody, man. And, and Jamie wouldn't either. He has no rhythm, and he was he was, he was was playing off of me. And there was times when he would get off rhythm, and I'd have to jump in and try my best to get us back on. Yeah, it was, it was sometimes a nightmare. I mean, there was – there was a time when he was passed out in the dressing room, and uh, Davy Boy and uh, and uh, Owen had shaving cream him from head to toe in his gimmick, <laughs> and our music is fucking playing. They're telling us to go to the ring, and he's got shaving cream all over him and passed out on the floor. So I've got to pick him up, put him in the shower, rinse him off, and put a mic in his hand and basically walk to the ring with him and uh, you know try to do this rap. So yeah, it was hard. <laughs> Now, I'll tell you, I went to, uh, this. I think, of the second or third appearance of the nation at uh, Madison Square Garden. And here I am waiting for that music to hit and hear the rap coming out live. But it was actually canned at that point, and you guys were coming out to a track. Now, was that uh, mm-hmm. at the house shows only, and was that something that uh, yeah, you guys maybe so. needed a that night was, off? <laughs> yeah, I think that was just for that Madison Square Garden show, because that wasn't taped. I remember that show. Uh, so I think that was it. And see, you know, the thing about that, I'll tell you another funny story, how they kind of got me, was, you know, okay, I, I wrote that and everything, and we laid the track down, and it's on it's on tape. Well, when they came out with the CD of the uh, WWE Music or however, whatever they call it, volume, whatever, uh, in the nation, when you noticed, they took our vocals out of it. Well, years later, you know, the Internet wasn't what it is now back in 96 and 7. 
so years later, I find out that the uh, the overseas version does have our uh, vocals in it, and I've never received a nickel for that. And that, yeah, that kind of gets me hot. <laughs> it's always that overseas version, you know. Back in the day, the import that you'd go looking for, you got to uh, right. you got to find find that. Now, the nation's big fuse with uh, with Ahmed Johnson, and he's uh, been known to maybe be a little bit rough uh, from stories that we've heard uh, circulated around the uh, the net. Is it true? What was it like to uh, to take a shot from Ahmed there in the midst of that huge feud at the time? Uh, I just knew, I mean, and this is going to sound bad, but me and Jamie both knew, you know, we were way better workers than what he was. So, you know, like I said, we were always trying to find spots for ourselves. So, we, I mean, Ahmed was cool. We were cool with him and everything. We were like, Ahmed, hey, let's do this. We'll, when this happens, you know, we'll, we'll do this or whatever. And if you if you ever watch uh, you know Royal Rumble there at the end, uh, I'm, I think I feed into him and uh, he press slams me, but he's so blown up he can't even pick me up all the way. And so when he goes to toss me over the top, I'm 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 at an angle and my legs catch the ropes and you know thank God there was people down there to catch me because I tumbled out on my head. But stuff like that, I don't really ever recall him uh, doing anything that made me go Jesus Christ or anything, but. Um, you know, he was just, he was one of those big guys and we were used to everybody being bigger than us, first of all. And so we were used to having to, uh, protect ourselves and to position ourselves, um, for people that were, uh, trying to think how to put this, uh, you know, just less than when it came to timing and working and stuff. And I mean, cause in Memphis, I said this the other day, man, uh, as a collective group, some of the worst freaking wrestlers I've ever been in the ring with were the Memphis uh, job guys. Uh, I don't know what the word for that is now, but the guys that never won, you know what I mean? Those guys, uh, they were terrible. And you literally had to, like, really, you had to really arm drag them and you had to really do shit to them. So we were just used to putting people in positions to uh, make ourselves look good, I guess would be the best way for me to put that. Now, the Nation of Domination, if you really think about it, like what an eclectic Savio Vega, obviously you guys, uh, D'Lo Brown with mixed in, but of course the head honcho, the leader for Rook, Ron Simmons. Mm-hmm. What was it like working with him at that point? Because he was a huge star in WWE, former world champ, and now mm-hmm. he comes in and he's doing this like black militant thing, you know, with the Nation yeah. of Domination. What was it like working with him? I mean, so much different from WCW to WWF. Yeah, he is a, Ron's a great dude, man. Uh, and he... I think he appreciated us because, again, we were always trying to do something, trying to, you know, and it wasn't to, like, really, we weren't trying to get moves in or anything, obviously. We were, hell, trying to think up the best way to showcase ourselves, and if that meant taking a big bump for somebody, that's what we wanted to do. And he appreciated that, man, and he knew we were, you know, good little sidekicks for him. We were, we had character, like I said, as opposed to most of the other people that just stood around. Um, I think he realized that, that we could help him out. We could take bumps for him that he didn't have to freaking take, and he appreciated that too. And uh, but uh, you know, outside the ring, Ron was awesome, man. He liked me and Jamie, and he just, you know, we weren't uh, making the best des- decisions um, outside of the ring at that point. And he just thought we were crazy. He'd, he'd always say, "Man, y'all crazy, man, y'all crazy." And, uh, <laughs> We got we had a good rapport with him though. Now, 
was very curious about this because now we've talked to a couple of the old school wrestlers that have dealt with Vince. Obviously, a lot of the, the black wrestlers that have dealt with Vince, such as Kamala and stuff, and they're saying that, you know, Vince is, is you know, he's like an old school guy. Perhaps he's a little bit like closet racist and this to that. But mm-hmm. when you work for Vince, did you ever have the sense, you know, with your gimmick and all, you ever get the, the sense, even with the Nation of Domination uh, associated, did you ever get the sense that he was maybe a little racist? Nah, honestly, no. Nah. I mean, I didn't really, I didn't have a lot of dealings with Vince. I mean, I was low, low, low on the totem pole, so I didn't have to, to deal with him that much. But, man, I mean, the wrestling business is a jacked up place, especially the older wrestling business. I know it has changed a lot to where, you know, if I were in WWE at the moment, I might not recognize the dressing room, you know, the way things are now, the way everything's changed. There's cameras everywhere. Everybody's got one on their phone. I, You know, I'm just glad there wasn't camera phones back in the 90s. I can tell you that much because <laughs> there was a lot of stuff that I wouldn't want pictures of running around. Um, and, 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 you know, every the world in general is way different than it used to be. It's, it's nuts to me. Um, but... I mean, the wrestling business is, um, man, it's hard to really think of the words for it. It's always been a little corrupt. I mean, it came from carnies, you know. Um, It was a business in which you were trying to hide uh, a lie, basically, I guess would be a good way to put it, you know, before everybody knew it was a lie. And you were trying to manipulate uh, people and it was a secret society. So you you think about where everything came from. You think about that his father was a promoter, and and the, you know he learned from him. And I'm sure that there there could be all that. Can, and now I'm not saying Vince McMahon is a racist in any stretch of the imagination, but um, I'm just saying, man, the business is different. I've seen all kinds of stuff in the business. I've seen things that would make people. Uh, I, I call them normal people who haven't been in the wrestling business, and really, and I don't mean people that work independent wrestling. I mean people that have really made a living at wrestling. Uh, I've seen a lot of crazy stuff that would make normal people, uh, you know, eyes pop out of their head probably, or ears bleed. <laughs> so it's just, yeah, I, I don't know really. I didn't see that, but that's my take on the business, and I, it wouldn't surprise me. Now, I don't know if you're too familiar with it because I don't know, like, if you watch wrestling uh, currently or, uh, you know, at all. But obviously you were still heavily in the business in 2002 when John Cena did that, uh, you know, the white rapper gimmick, almost like uh, Vanilla Ice or almost like Eminem. But I would say more so like PG-13 a little bit with, uh, you know, kind of like with the way he was dressing. Did you ever think that there was, like, a little correlation there that uh, John Cena was kind of, you know, I wouldn't say stealing your gimmicks, but kind of, uh, you know, doing the whole white rapper thing just like you guys did. Absolutely, man. Uh, I can I can take it back to um, 1993 when uh, Jerry Jarrett gave us a break. We did the whole, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but we did like a month's worth, worth of rap videos before we ever came on the air and actually wrestled. They just showed videos of us rapping, you know, like, like that's how they used to do, kind of a coming soon type of thing to make people's interest peak and who are these guys and yada yada. So uh, Jerry Jarrett was really high on us, and uh, then um, before we went to Mexico, Jerry let us go. He was mad at us. We legit missed some towns because we were driving around 
and a 77 Thunderbird with rust on the roof, and it had blowouts all the time. We'd replace it because we was broke with those, uh, what is it called, recap tires, whatever it's called. And uh, we'd have blowouts all the time because you're not supposed to drive, you know, 1,500 miles a week with uh, those kind of tires. So, at any rate, uh, we missed a few shows legitimately because the tire blew out. And so Jerry got mad. He fired us, so we went to Mexico. If you'll notice, there was a team called Men on the Mission uh, that came out soon thereafter, uh, then on a mission. And that's when Jerry Jarrett had went to New York. Now, you tell me. There was two guys that were in his company that came up with a very unique gimmick that involved rapping that everybody thought was too small for WWE. So then the guy from Memphis goes to WWE for a little bit, and one of the first gimmicks you see come out is a rap gimmick. But they hired two giant black dudes to do it, and a what I think wasn't Oscar like a real rapper or something like that. But anyway, yeah. yep. there's there's that. And then if you look at the, the original music that Jamie and I came out to is called Hip Hop Hooray. And we, we came out, that was kind of the gimmick at the beginning, was waving the hands back and forth, getting the crowd to do that too. Uh, men on a Mission, wave the hands back and forth. Um, so to me, that was that was the first one that was like, okay, this is, <laughs> this is them taking our gimmick from us, you know, even though they weren't white. Then you have uh, Too Cool, which I love Brian to death, but I've joked with him before, Too Cool is absolutely... PG-13. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, almost down to the colors uh, of the of each one of them. But that, that all they needed was a hubcap. And uh, and then John Cena, same thing. Um, and I'm not, you know, like I said, I'm not bitter because of it, but those, I do think that there was heavy PG-13 influence because PG-13 came before Public Enemy. They came before uh, Too Cool. I can't, we came before all of them. And, you know, to say that there wasn't some kind of influence on the, you know, our gimmick was original, and that's that. Very, you know, very, very well said. And with the WWF, obviously, you guys were, um, I don't know if it was released or let go or, or if it was like a contract thing, but how did you end up departing from the WWF after the Nation of Domination? Uh, like I said, Jamie and I weren't making the best decisions. Um behind the scenes when we were up there, man, we were just having fun. Dude, I was only like 21, I think at the time, 22. And I thought it was never going to end, you know? And uh, we were having too much fun doing things we shouldn't have been doing. And the office found out about it. There was also a, a bit of a, a altercation, I guess, with me and Jerry Lawler just for a brief minute. We're cool now, you know, a little bit of a misunderstanding. I think that played a part in it as well because we were going to ECW and there was just some uh, just some uh, miscommunications there. But at any rate, yeah, they uh, right after WrestleMania, um, you know, the the next Monday Night Raw, we see that we're um, you know going out there with the Road Warriors, and we actually had walked out that night when we saw it, saw what was going to happen. Uh, you know, they're just going to smash us or whatever. We were cool with Hawk and Animal, too. I love those guys. They were my heroes. The reason I'm a wrestler is because of those two uh, being such an influence in my childhood. So we actually went to them and just said, look here, man, they're fixing to smash us and kill our damn career because, you know, we like I said, we were doing ECW at the same time, too, hoping to get a push there. And, you know, when you go on Raw and get smashed like that, it's really not good for you. So, uh, you know, we went to them and we're like, look here, man, 
we're we're leaving. We're not doing this. We love you guys, and you know it has nothing to do with you. It's it's to protect ourselves. And Hawk was like, dude, it's done. You know, I understand, man. You know, get out of here if that's what you think you need to do. So we actually packed our shit. We walked out. We got out to the parking lot, and then here comes Shawn Michaels and Jim Ross chasing us down to the car, <clears throat> you know, trying to convince us to come back in and just do the business thing, do the right thing. And, uh, you know, long story short is that we ended up coming back in, and Sean actually got us paid for a month after they let us go. You know, it was kind of a, I don't know, good gesture of some sort. And uh, so we went back in and did it, man. And, you know, to be honest with you, I'm glad we did go back in um, because, you know, it didn't hurt that bad. But uh, it's funny because that's the one match – you know, how many teams have been smashed by the Road Warriors? And it's one match that a lot of people remember for whatever reason. I guess we did the greatest fucking smash job in the world. But <laughs> that was that, man. We just made bad decisions, bro. If I remember correctly, that Doomsday device was uh, pretty stiff. And uh, I, I remember, I don't remember if it was you or, or, or uh, JC. Uh, I was both of us. Oh my yeah, like it was almost like a three sixty or whatever it is at a twenty. You guys got flipped yeah. twice. I was like, Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Everybody remembers that one. Yeah, that oh that was stiff, yep. But as you mentioned, uh, ECW, what was it like in ECW at that point? Because obviously they were getting hot, and you guys were working with yeah. Whip Whipwreck and Spike and then the Deadly Boys as well. What was it like in ECW? Oh man, it's just like a party in the back. I didn't go out there and Give it your all, and you know it was so laid back. It was cool, you know. That's that's what I dug about it. Everybody was, you know, real, real cool, and uh, it, it, there was a lot of extracurricular activities going on. Um, <laughs> but we had a good time there, and I thought we worked hard. Um, made a lot of people up that way, you know, pay attention to us, you know, as to where we were kind of, you know, everybody down south knew who we were. But then we came up there, and, and Everybody up that way started noticing who we were. Now, there's a lot of stories about Paul Heyman and uh, you know him kind of being a little bit cheap, or him not paying guys, or him being shady. What was the deal with Paul Heyman? Did you uh, see any of that when you were in ECW? Man, we always got our money, but there it was like a waiting game. He tried to wait you out. I mean, I remember sitting at the building until one or two o'clock in the morning waiting on a damn check when he. You know, they'd go back off in a room somewhere, him and whoever else, and, you know, you just had to wait to be called to get paid. And I remember, man, many nights waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And, and you know, they what the deal was, they were hoping you would either, you know, go on and leave and go to the next town and, and just, you know, wait for it the next day, and then it might happen again. So, But we always were smart enough to know, we're not going to get behind, you know. Once we get behind, we're going back to Nashville and we're going to stay there. So we we knew just to wait it out and, you know, if we didn't get paid, we weren't coming back, but eventually we did get paid. They never ended up owing us anything. And what was the decision, um, you know, basically a little bit after that, but what was the decision like to go to WCW? Obviously, I mean, that's just a little bit after that, but I think you wrestled the yeah. Young Dragons and three kind of stuff. But what was the decision like to go to WCW at that point? Uh, that was just another deal with, uh, you know, Jeff had kind of helped us out getting to meet his dad back in the ni- about 93, you know. And uh, Jeff had always, you know, kind of been cool with me and Jamie. And um, we just called him up, you know, when we got – 
done with the other stuff, ECW and, and all that, and, and he was in uh, WCW with some stroke, and they just said, hey, man, hook us up. And basically, that's all it was, was just trying to get some work somewhere. Was it ever supposed to be like a long-term deal, or did you guys just, you know, maybe a couple dates here or there, and, and then you're, you know. Yeah, it was just, play. it was it was dates here and there, and, you know, again, we went out there and showed off, you know, for what they wanted. They wanted us to be in the little cruiserweight tag team type division, and we went out there, and we did our jobs and did it well, and so they kept using us on that. Uh, there, you know, that was Vince Russo time, and they were high on uh, three count and high on the dragons, and you know, not so much high on our gimmick, um, or he wasn't. But they also, at the same time, knew that we could go out there and get those gimmicks he wanted over. We could get them over. So that was our end, you know. Did you enjoy your time in WCW, or was it kind of like, um, like everyone says, mass chaos, and there wasn't a lot of direction, and you know, it was basically crazy at that point in WCW. Well, it was probably more so for the guys that were on top. Um, you know, somebody like us who was just going out there trying to trying to impress and get a job, you know, it was we were glad to be there. We knew that the company wasn't uh you know, it, it wasn't in its best shape or whatever. So, yeah, we knew that, but we were just trying to get to stay around, you know, that's all that's all you wanted, you know, cuz honestly no wrestler really gives a shit. I mean, yeah, when you're on top, you want the company to do well, but when you're trying to get in, you could care less really how great it's doing. You just want in and be a part of it. Then once you get in, then you might want to worry about how well you're drawing or whatever, but you're just trying to get a job. Just go out there to impress, you know? Yep, definitely know what you mean. And then, you know, eventually you guys would break up and you'd, you'd go your separate way with uh, OVW. Where did he, um, he end up at that point? And was it like, a, you know, you guys agreed upon you're going to split up and go your separate ways? Uh, somewhat. We just realized the, the gimmick had kind of run its course too, man. I mean, you know, nowadays everybody's about throwbacks and stuff, so it could work again just as, you know, for a little bit for reuniting stuff. But uh, it had basically run its course. You know, all the, all the um, call them imposters that we just talked about, that it all happened. And then when, you know, it kind of sucks when – you're the original, but your gimmick didn't get the national exposure that the imposters did. So then people are looking at you like you're the fucking imitator. That sucks. <laughs> when you know, <laughs> hold up, hold up, little kid. John, I am not copying John Cena, you little bastard. And uh, so I don't know. I just felt like it was time to for me to change my look. I mean, there was, I've done it a couple of times where I just you know quit the business pretty much and. Uh, that was kind of one of them where I kind of decided I didn't want to do it for a minute. But anyway, I came up with the, the idea for Slash and then, um, you know, talked to Cornette about it and ended up going to OVW, and he, he pushed me strong up there. Uh, and, and they started looking at me again. We got me another look from WWE. I did some, you know, uh, dark matches and did some other stuff like that. And, you know, Jim Ross came to me and said, hey, we're looking at you again. Don't shoot yourself in the foot because he knew my track record, and sure enough, I did. So, that was about the end of that. How'd you uh, shoot yourself in the foot, so to speak? Uh, just doing my extracurricular activities behind the behind the scenes, and they knew it. You know, I just I don't know. Wrestling for me and Jamie was always it was like riding a bicycle. It was natural, and and the environment that I came up in. It was acceptable to, you know, party and sometimes, you know, 
be a little um, messed up while I was out there. And, I, I, you know, and I was never so messed up that I couldn't perform. But, you know, it just the times were changing at that point, too. And, and that was really frowned upon. And it just, uh, I don't know, man. Uh, I don't know how to explain it. I mean, I could do it, but I shouldn't have done it. And I just couldn't. I was young and just uh, wasn't didn't have my head on right, man. Uh, you know, I wish I would have. I wish I could go back and change a lot of things. But everything has for a reason, right? Yep, that's very, very true. Now, when you were in OVW, you mentioned uh, Jim Cornette, obviously, was uh, the man in charge at that point. But they put mm-hmm. you in, uh, you know, with your new look, they put you in Disciples of Sin, and there was a right. couple other, uh, you know, very uh, familiar faces in there. But what was it like with that group and at that time in OVW? Because it seemed like it was a hot time uh, for that territory. Yeah, it was cool, man. Um, um, of course, his his wife, Stacy, was, was Sin, and we were her disciples, and Batista was in it, and a few other folks. Um, and then when I left, I think, uh, Tyson or Tomko, I think he came in. He had a few others, but yeah, when I was there, it was it was awesome, and he was giving us a super show. So for a lot of the shows where it's like it was the disciples show, and which was cool, and you know he allowed me to have some input on stuff, and most of the guys there respected the fact that I had been around a minute, so they listened to me, and you know it was a good time, you know. And I was really, man, I was still like paying my dues because like. I would take the bus every while. And, and here's what's so discouraging at that time is when they started giving contracts to guys, Batista being one of them, who really didn't give a shit about wrestling, you know, who weren't, who didn't pursue wrestling as a dream. It's kind of like the WWE came to them and, hey, we'll pay you to go train to be a wrestler. And then you got guys like me who had been, you know, busting our asses night after night trying to get a break. And, like, I was I was in the developmental, but I wasn't under contract. I was taking a Greyhound bus from freaking Nashville to Louisville, Kentucky once a week. That's how much I wanted it, you know. So that that was uh, a very discouraging time. Also cool though, but it, looking at it that way, it was like, man, this is messed up. <laughs> hmm. Now with Batista, obviously, you know they brought him in, they pushed him to the moon, and then you know they took him to the WBS and uh, or WB, excuse me, and pushed him to the moon there, but. Did you foresee when they brought him in that they, you know, this oh this guy's gonna main event WrestleMania one day? No, <laughs> no, he he was very robotic and no, nah, he was not good. And then you know, like I told you guys, I really don't watch now, so I don't know how much he's improved. But I mean, obviously he's had to have uh, to be there. And you know, my hats off to him to you know to be able to. Uh, improve that much. Um, I mean, the same with the Rock. Though I think I told you that story of uh, him. Uh, First time, you know, he he was in Memphis. You know, he wasn't good either. I probably wasn't that good when I first started. But just looking at him, you know, they they they've got the best, uh, you know, coaches. And when you're when you're being pushed like that and given that kind of money, you're being an idiot not to improve. So, you know, it's just like I said, different ball game, man. They're they're learning under different circumstances, and you know. Uh, I think you know Rock. Obviously, you know he was his dad was in business, but then you know some of the guys like Batista and stuff that were around back then and being given contracts just because of the way they looked. You know, did you get a chance at all to work with a guy like Brock Lesnar or John Cena while you were in OVW, or were they? Uh, I think John John had just left. I think when I got up there, I don't I don't recall him being there, but uh, yeah, Brock was there, and, and I can't remember whether. We worked with him. We worked with a lot of people. 
um, I can't remember where we worked with him or not. I mean, I know he was there, and that was like one of my meltdown nights. Uh, <laughs> uh, I came through cussing from the back. I was so pissed off. I think it was like my last night there. I came back so mad, and I kicked the door in, and he was right on the other side of the door. The door, like, missed him by a few inches, man. I'm thinking, oh, God. <laughs> but I didn't sell it. I just kept going cussing. <laughs> did you, uh, when you saw him, did you foresee him being, you know, the blockbuster uh, pay-per-view draw that he turned out to be? Well, no, uh, not really, because um, – and, and you got to understand, I don't know if it was ego or what, but, I mean, I just really didn't pay attention to – if they weren't involved in my stuff, I really didn't pay attention to it, you know. I've never been – only people I – like, when I first started, like, you know, in Memphis and stuff, I would always, after my match, go sit up top at the Coliseum where there were no fans and watch Lawler, you know, watch Jeff and watch all those guys. And that's how I would try to learn as well as watching myself back on TV to critique myself. But at that point in my career – it wasn't about, you know, obviously watching those guys and try to learn anything. And, uh, yeah, so I, I really didn't – I don't know if that's bad or good that I really didn't care, but if, if it wasn't my stuff, I really had no interest in it. Now, obviously, you know, soon thereafter you would depart from OVW, but why did you end up leaving OVW? Because uh, I, I had a meltdown, man. I, I got drunk one day and uh, just – there was a deal that I was going to do on TV, the thing that I wanted to do in the interview. And I, uh, I rambled on for a while and, and, and just, it wasn't good. And then they went black on me, which pissed me off. And that's why I came back cussing and all that shit. And I think it was, I don't know that Cornette really got that mad about it, but you know, Danny wasn't going to take it. So I think that was kind of the end of the, end of the road for me there. And obviously you end up in TNA Wrestling with Jeff Jarrett and Jerry Jarrett, mm-hmm. two uh, old friends of yours, you might say, from uh, USWA. But right. how, did they, how did they approach you? Did Jeff or Jerry come to you, or did you go to them You know about coming to TNA? Uh, well, I think it was a deal. Like Jeff and I talk on the side occasionally, and I mean still just a little bit. Um, and, you know, like you said, they had given me my first break. And so I can't remember how I got wind he was doing something, but he was real kayfabe with it at the beginning. And he was making people sign contracts to be quiet about it if he talked to you, stuff like that. And um, I actually started, I think we were going to try to come up with a logo or something, and he wanted to see what I'd come up with. And then we just got more talking. I was like, Jeff, I really don't want to do something like this. I'd really like to work. And I you know, told him about the new gimmick and showed him the pictures and stuff like that. And so it kind of evolved into me uh, working, and uh, I did the first pay-per-view for him in Huntsville. And then I'm not sure that they really had any plans for me, to be honest, because the, the disciples of the new church was kind of thrown together as a last-minute deal, uh, putting me and Brian together and all that. And actually putting the belt on us, I don't think, was a uh, really hard-thought-out process. It was kind of a last-minute deal as well. And then all of a sudden, the shit started working. So... But, yeah, to the the way I got there was just kind of a fluke sort of deal. It wasn't – I don't know that I was – I guess I was kind of pursuing it once I found out about it, obviously. But it wasn't, uh, you know, oh, there's this TNA place and I want to go there. You know, it wasn't really that either. Yeah, the new church, it was actually, you know, it almost seemed like it was well-planned and well-thought-out because it was one of the best things that they had going for them during the early mm-hmm. days. It was different. It was cool. And then you throw in James Mitchell – as like the mouthpiece and it was like man these guys are crazy and this is different mm-hmm. and uh, 
you and Brian Lee worked together really well. But did you think that, um, you know, with TNA, did you think it was going to last? Like when you were in the new church, were you thinking like, oh, I don't know how long, you know, basically how long this thing is going to really last for? Well, there was a point where I kind of thought that it was going to go downhill, but then once Dixie and all of them came on board, I was like, okay, this is going to take off. But, you know, I had a job, and a, you know, a real job at the time that was paying good money. And it was in Nashville, so I didn't have to travel. I just had to do the pay-per-view once a week, which worked out great. And uh, then, you know, when it, when it all came down to them going to Florida, it was kind of like, okay, well, they're going to have to, you know, put me on a contract different from the one I was on, which was basically just, you know, uh, uh, guaranteeing me a certain amount of money for a certain amount of shows instead of, like, a termed contract, really. And so for me to have, to drop my job and to go to Florida would have been, they would have had to, you know, throw some numbers at me. And like I said earlier, they, they ended up owing me money at the end of that, that first contract anyway. So it's kind of like uh, shitty terms, I guess, at the end of it. So there was really no uh, negotiations for that. Because I'll be honest, I don't think, and and I heard this from somebody, and this may sound really crazy, but, you know, like, I mean, she was definitely first getting in the business. Dixie was really, I don't know if she was scared of me or thought I was crazy or what, but she was really standoffish with me. So I don't know if it was just the fact that, like, uh, you know, Dixie didn't like me or, or what, but it's like when that part of it took over with Russo and all that kind of shit, it's like uh, I kind of got phased out, you know. Mm. Could be that new look you had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, with, uh, you know, obviously with the new look and with James Mitchell and with Disciple of the New Church, you said that, you know, they didn't put a lot of thought into it, but it seemed like you guys really meshed well together. Did you like the pairing of you, Brian Lee, and James Mitchell? Oh, yeah. Uh, Brian's good, and, and he probably, me and Brian probably had better chemistry than anybody other than me and Jamie. And, uh, you know, Mitchell, of course, that's that whole gimmick was right up his alley, and, you know, he can talk, like, with the best of them. I thought it was great. And, you know, like I said, Jim appreciated me as being kind of the workhorse and the staple in the deal because, you know, after Brian left, and there was Sin, and there was, they tried to bring Flash Flanagan in, too, and just couldn't ever really make anything work after me and Brian. But uh, I loved it. I mean, that's some of the, some of the best stuff I think of my career. If, if you go looking uh, look at the matches and stuff, I think. Now, obviously, Dixie would come in and kind of be the boss. But was it weird working for Jeff uh, Jarrett at that point? I know you guys said you were close and everything, but was he different maybe than he was when you knew him uh, years back? Well, a little bit. Uh, Jeff's always just super business guy, man, and uh, everything's super kayfabe, and, you know, he's not going to talk to you for long and stuff like that. And uh, so, yeah, and I I had already, I knew how he was, I knew how Jerry was, I just kind of went with the flow, man, try not to rock the boat too much, just take what was given to me, you know, and they did me all right for a while, and then, like I said, when the new new powers that B came in, it, you know, it changed a little bit. And it was disappointing, you know, because I knew we were over. I knew it was doing good, but that's the wrestling business, man. Hmm. I remember distinctly you guys had a feud with uh, Raven and his, you know, his quote-unquote gathering, which was Julio mm-hmm. De Niro and, of course, uh, the very famous CM Punk. Did you, mm-hmm. uh, do you remember that feud at all? Because I remember that being kind of like a highlight of, you know, the pay-per-view when, you know, each Wednesday. Yeah, yeah, that was good stuff, yeah. Um I enjoyed working with Scotty, and 
uh, Punk, you know, at the time, he's, he didn't really, he was all right, you know, he didn't, nothing stood out to me. But uh, I understand, you know, I never saw anything after that of his. I've never seen the guy wrestle one time, except for, you know, in the ring with me. But I, I, evidently, he did something right. Hmm. Yeah, he uh, he kind of made a good name for himself. But, uh, you know, as they say, the WWE, uh, I guess, and him didn't see eye to eye. And now he's in the UFC. But yeah. one, guy, <laughs> one guy you mentioned um was Vince Russo. Did you have a lot of interaction with him? What was your thoughts on Vince Russo? Well, see, when when me and Jamie were in WWF um, doing the Nation thing, he was still working for the magazine, I guess. He was in some kind of position there. And there's a there's a uh, WWF magazine that me and Jamie are actually on the cover of, and he was responsible for that. And, and of course, Jamie's such a big mark for himself. You know, when he found that out, you know, who put him on the cover, then Vince Russo was his best friend. But this was before Vince Russo was the Vince Russo. So, you know, we kind of were friendly with him there. But then um, when he came up to do, you know, what everybody thinks was the greatest shit ever, uh, we weren't there. So, <clears throat> anyway, then when he comes to TNA, I mean, obviously he had a reputation or whatever. And honestly, uh, he I never really had much dealings with the guy after that. He kind of, he had that ego and had that... Uh, you know, that name he'd made for himself, and I guess he believed his own shit, and sometimes that happens to guys when they when they make a name for themselves, you know, they walk around like they are that person. So, yeah, I didn't really deal with him much, and I knew that I wasn't in his clique, so. <laughs> and with TNA, it's funny because nowadays there's a lot of complaints. Like you mentioned, they owe you some money. Now there's some complaints that there are people who are just outright not getting paid, like at all. Mm-hmm. Do you ever get do you ever get the sense from TNA that maybe you know they're not being run properly uh, as far as uh, you know leadership? Well, the last time I worked for them was what, a couple of years ago in, uh, on the one one night only uh, pay per view series. Uh, me and Sin went down and worked for them, and I'll tell you, man, that was that was really tough because. You know, obviously, I was trying to get a job back, and I knew it was pretty much my last chance to to do anything like that at my age and and just where I was. And, you know, we went down there and wrestled uh, Hernandez and Homicide, two guys who I'd never met before. I'd never been in the ring, you know, obviously with them before. And in all honesty, uh, you know, I hated that match as well. Uh, It seems like sometimes when I get put on a big stage, uh, I I feel like I, I got fucked because... Um, nobody told us anything, I swear to God, until about 20 to 30 minutes before we walked through the curtain. I had no idea what was going on, you know, nothing. And that's pretty tough to be put in a pay-per-view situation with 30 minutes to figure everything out before you go through the curtain and work two guys you never worked before. So having said that, you know, you look at the match and go, well, it wasn't that great. Well, considering those circumstances, I'd say it wasn't that fucking bad. (laughs) And you know what I mean? The whole time there, it just seemed like the the whole atmosphere, everybody, you know, a lot of those guys had been there. You know, that was a series that went on all week or whatever, and some of those guys had worked more than one of the shows and stuff like that. So, you know, a lot of them were tired and in bad moods and yada, yada. And like I said, I'm trying to get a fucking job. <laughs> and it just the whole environment pretty much stunk. So, I mean, I can see where people, you know, where you can say that it wasn't being run very well. That that was, for to be a pay-per-view, it was a clusterfuck. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of weird, uh, you know, rumors about CNA and this and that, but did you ever get the sense that maybe that they weren't going to be sticking around for much longer? Because I know this is, what, a year and a half ago, two years ago, maybe? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't follow it that much, but, I, you know, you get wind on Facebook, you see people posting stuff, and, yeah, you can tell it was was going downhill. And, uh, you know, then that's when Jeff backed us and started doing this global thing and, you know, just knowing Jeff, you know what, to be quite honest, I think the whole global thing, this is just my opinion, could be, could have been a work from the get-go. Him, him resigning could have been a work, uh, you know, setting up this whole global thing as a, as a separate company could have been a work and, and, you know, only time will tell if that ever comes out. But I just know Jeff and he's super K-saved and somebody like him could absolutely pull that off. You know, it's funny you say that because obviously now he's back in TNA. He's quote like a yep. quote unquote uh, authority figure, and he, you know, obviously he's still a part owner in the company, and and he brought mm-hmm. in GFW to quote unquote feud with TNA, and he was just put in the TNA Hall of Fame. So it's interesting right. that you say that because you uh, you may have hit the nail on the head. I mean, we we might not know, but you, I think you're onto. Absolutely, man. As soon as I I saw somebody post on Facebook where he had, you know, for the first time or whatever, come on TNA, I was like, good God, he's a, he's a genius, man. I mean, and, and you got it at the times now. If you can keep something kayfabe like that during this day and age, that says a lot. So, I don't know. I, I If I was a betting man, I would say it was a work from the get-go. Wow, that's very interesting. Never even thought about that. That is, I mean, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that could be right, but everything that's going on with, uh, you know, GFW and TNA today is very... I mean, there's only two. It's either that or uh, TNA was doing so bad that he had the upper hand and was able to say, look here, Dixie, you want me to help save this company now? You know, you let me do this. So it's it's one of the two, but I, I just see it as being A. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Interesting. Now, as uh, we wind it down a bit here, I know we had mentioned that uh, you, you don't like to say, you know, your favorite match or, you know, favorite match that you had. But I'm just curious, what was, the you know, your most financially successful angle that you had? Like, you know, where you could almost make it your favorite because that's the way you made the most money. Um, I mean, without a doubt, the, the baby face run in USWA, and especially uh, there near the, you know, during the Smoky Mountain USWA feud, without a doubt. Um, I mean, I made good money with TNA, too, but, you know, and, and but that, it, it didn't really matter how many people were there, you know. When, in, in USWA, we were kind of paid based on the house. Hmm. Gotcha. Now, is it? True, you had a wrestling school or have a wrestling school? Because I know I was reading about it. It was Wolfie D's wrestling school. That's yeah, so- Wolfie D's House of Champions. Yeah, I'd, I'd opened that up in Nashville. Um, I guess that was 2012, and it, it did really well. Um, you know, I did something that most wrestling schools hadn't done, didn't do. Uh, just like I put a commercial on TV during like regular TV shows and during wrestling, and uh, had my students go down. You know when. Uh, when WWE was in town and pass out flyers when the people were letting out and things like that. And so it, it did pretty good, man. And then uh, when I uh, left Nashville, on, on a personal note, I got out of Nashville and came up this way towards Knoxville. You know, I, I tried to continue it. Um, I let Chris Michaels take over the training because that was really the only person I trusted to be good enough to do it and then not try to, you know, screw me or anything. 
And, you know, he did a good job, but the thing was, it was called Wolfie D's House of Champions, and people wanted me to train them. And so attendance started dropping off after I left, and not to mention me trying to, because before I actually hired him, I was trying to drive there twice a week and just, you know, gas money and all that crap. And it was just, it was just getting to be a pain in the ass, really, more trouble than it was worth. And so, uh, you know, that I pretty much just let it go. And, um, yeah, and, and as far as starting one up here, you know, the whole scene's a bit different up here. Um, and, and, I mean, Tom Pritchard has tried it, and, you know, a couple other people tried it. It just doesn't work here, and so I, I never really even gave it another thought. Now, I was going to mention this during TNA, and I kind of forgot to mention it, but I know we had talked about the Legion of Doom a little bit and how they gave you probably mm-hmm. the greatest uh, Doomsday device of all time. Ruin and uh, I forgot. I looked and it was uh, in TNA. They gave you mm-hmm. uh, another awesome Doomsday device. Uh, do you remember uh, yeah. in TNA them uh, laying you out as well? Yeah, I don't remember what the deal was of why they ran in the ring, but yeah, I remember. I remember that. I mean, those were like I said, those are my heroes, man. They're, Road Warriors are the reason I wanted to be a wrestler. You know, Hawk was awesome. Animals, he, he's a pretty good guy too. But me and Hawk were really cool. I'll tell you funny story was uh, during, I think it was WrestleMania week, uh, me and Jamie had went out to a bar with him, and, you know, Animal really don't drink and uh, or didn't party hard as, you know, <laughs> Hawk did. And uh, we're sitting there, and uh, for some crazy reason, Jamie wasn't drinking either. And uh, me and Hawk got really, really shit-faced and sitting there and I'm telling him, you know, what I just told you about these reason I wanted to be a wrestler and blah, blah, blah. he's hugging on me, this big giant dude's just like hugging on me and man, that means so much to me, Wolfie guy, you just don't know. And so we're getting really drunk and finally Animal looks at Jamie and he says, look man, I'll get the big one, you get the little one, let's get out of here. And we're sitting there hugging in the middle of the bar and stuff. <laughs> That's great. A softer side to Road Warrior Hawk, which is a great, a great way to end it. Now, uh, before we let you go, Wolfie, we just uh, we want to know. We usually ask this, but uh, you've already kind of established the fact that there's been a lot of uh, people that come down the pike and really take on a uh, at that point one of a kind gimmick and go further with it. But what do you think that the legacy of Wolfie D, PG-13, and what you brought to the business would be when you close the book? Man, I would hope, you know, that people would, you know, that Jamie still gets heat to this day as far, you know, um, people just on a personal level not liking him and stuff. I hope a lot of people can look past that and kind of look at our work, you know. Some people that aren't aware of who we were, what we did, you know, can look at it and go, damn, those, those guys were good, you know, because I know that's fact. I know we were damn good together and we were original and uh, we were able to go pretty much everywhere there is to go and and do well everywhere we went. So, you know, if, um, you know, I I lived out a dream, got to go a lot of places I wouldn't have otherwise, see a lot of things. And, you know, when it, when it's done, I made it to the Super Bowl of wrestling, which is WrestleMania as PG-13. And, uh, you know, um, I guess that's really it, man. Just the people can look at it, look past some of the, some of the shit on the outside and, and look at what we, what we produced in the ring and just say, yeah, you know, they work fucking good, you know. That's a, that's a hell of a way. That's even better to, to end it like that and uh, those words and uh, even on the Hawk story. But before we let you go as well, <laughs> just please give us one big plug and tell us everywhere we can find Wolfie D, especially that awesome artwork that we covered earlier in the interview. 
Yeah, man, I'm doing logos and T-shirts and all that kind of stuff uh, for, you know, businesses as well as wrestlers. Um, so it's Twitter. It's WolfieD underscore PG13. Instagram is WolfieD. And on Facebook, there's a few. There's uh, my personal page, Warren Wolf, W-O-L-F-E. And then there's a, a Wolfie D fan page. And then there's an artwork fan page called the Artwork of Wolfie D. Awesome. Check it out. This has been awesome. The bomb.